You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. You know, there's this famous old Chinese proverb that goes like this. Uh, Once upon a time, there was this Chinese farmer whose horse ran away. And that evening, all the farmer's neighbors came around to commiserate with him. They said, we're so sorry to hear your horses run away. This is most unfortunate. And the farmer responded simply with the words, maybe. The next day, that horse came back with seven other wild horses. And in the evening, everybody came back and said, oh, isn't that lucky? What a great turn of events. You now have eight horses. And the farmer again said, maybe. The following day, his son tried to break one of the horses while riding it. He was thrown off the horse and broke his leg. The neighbors then said, oh dear, that's too bad. And the farmer responded, maybe. The next day, the conscription officers came around to recruit people into the army. And they rejected his son because he had a broken leg. Again, all the neighbors came around and said, isn't that great? Again, the farmer said, maybe. You know, life is full of integrated twists and turns, full of immense complexity. And it's really impossible to tell what anything that happens in our life is really good or really bad, isn't it? Because you never know the consequences of the misfortune, and you never really know the consequences of the good fortune. We're quick often in our lives to label situations as bad if we dislike it and good if we like it. But binary thinking doesn't always serve us well in hindsight. You win a new piece of business, but it doesn't turn out great. Your girlfriend breaks up with you, but then you meet your wife. A key employee quits, and your business folds, and you don't know why. You buy a new house, but it has rats in it. The market crashes, but it's an opportunity for new investors. You get pregnant, but then you have a miscarriage. COVID happens, and it could be the best thing that ever happened to you or the worst thing that ever happened to you. Is it good? Is it bad? Maybe. One thing for sure, we know life is pretty uncertain. We never really know what situations may yield us, good or bad or otherwise. And the book of Acts is here, especially this text, to remind us to go beyond binary thinking. It requires us to pause and not jump too quickly to conclusions. And it promises us that our lives are going to be full of twists and turns that we could on the surface level name as good or bad. But really, when we look back, we're going to say all the good, all the bad turned not into maybe, but into good. Because somehow... I don't know how, but somehow, as we see in this text, God sovereignly, like a composer, conducting hundreds of different sounds in an orchestra, pulls together all the high notes of your life and all the really low baritone notes of your life into this beautiful symphony that we can't help but listen to and say, that's better than anything I've ever heard. We see here the sovereignty of God in relational conflict, personal sacrifice, and closed doors. Let's start with number one. It's about to get real practical up here. The sovereignty of God in your relational conflict. Anybody got any conflict this morning? 
No? Is your wife like, no, don't say anything? Uh, we all got conflict somewhere. We need some practical help. Verse 36 in chapter 15. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. If you remember, Paul went on a missionary journey with some friends, planted a bunch of churches. And so he's about to start his second missionary journey, and he wants to see how the churches he planted are doing. If you notice anything about the missionary strategy of Paul, he doesn't just do crusades, evangelistic uh, sermons and leave. He plants churches where these new Christians do life together. This is why our church is so big on church membership. While we highlighted it this morning, we brought our parents up that are part of our church because we want you to join a church. It doesn't have to be ours, but join a church so that you can grow up healthy in your faith. That's what Paul is doing. He's checking on these church families to see how they're doing. Verse 37. Barnabas, Paul's right-hand man, he's Robin to Paul's Batman, wanted to take with them John called Mark. Now, John Mark is this character that is Barnabas' cousin, so they're family. John Mark went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but he's a little soft because John Mark abandoned them at Perga. We don't know why. Luke never tells us why. Uh, he, he could have been homesick. He could have been idealistic and actually gone on the mission field and been like, Yo, this is hard. I'm going home. We don't know. But what we do know is that Paul did not accept whatever reason John Mark gave for leaving them. So verse 38, we see, Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Which, by the way, this verse is hilarious to me. Luke is like, yeah, Paul didn't want the one who abandoned them. You know, he doesn't actually say his name. Just to be a little subtle. You know, we're not going to name names here. John Mark withdrew from them. Let's just make it clear. Luke obviously didn't want to call him out. Verse 39. And this is what's so interesting. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with them and sailed away to Cyprus. So I think this is fascinating. The Bible is not some fairy tale where everything is happily ever after. Now, it will end with happily ever after, but sometimes in life, we have breakups. Life is real, man. Like, this is, this is hard. This is gritty. These two didn't just have a disagreement. They had a sharp disagreement. Two godly, good men fighting so deeply about an issue that they split ways. This word sharp in the Greek is the Greek word paroxymos, which is a combination of two Greek words, para and oxus. Para meaning with, and oxus meaning swords. So Luke is saying, they got swords drawn on each other right now. There's real wounds here. So this is not like a small disagreement Luke is trying to tell us. This is not like you, know, you and I trying to decide, hey, what kind of pizza are we going to order for dinner? And should we put pineapple on the pizza? Should we? See, we already got some sharp disagreement, right? No, obviously the answer is no. We don't put fruit on pizza. <laughs> Italians invented pizza, and they're horrified by us Americans ruining their great food. Anyway, you and I are going to have a disagreement, and it might lead to us splitting ways on dinner, but we're not gonna, a sharp disagreement is when we're like, we're not going to be friends anymore. We're not going to work together anymore. We're not going to get married anymore. We're not going to do business together anymore. That kind of disagreement, that's what's happening here. Now, 
three truths I think we need to acknowledge as we consider this text. Number one, and this is, this is encouraging, this is encouraging, but also challenging. Conflict between Christians is inevitable. That's the first sub-point when it comes to relational conflict. Conflict between Christians is inevitable. I think this is so interesting. Why would Luke put this in the Bible? Like, he easily could have just not shared this and just said, oh yeah, Barnabas went here and Paul went there, right? Or even, where's the PR team, right? The public relations to spin this in a positive way. Yeah, yeah, Barnabas heard from the Lord. He feels called to Cyprus. And Paul feels called to the west, or the east, excuse me. They don't do that, right? There's no positive spin. God doesn't need PR. He wants to show you the reality. This could have been swept under the rug. This could have been made into a positive spin. No, Luke wants us to know they disagreed so deeply that they couldn't even work together anymore. Why does he want us to know? Because he wants you to know that it happens in the Christian life. Don't be surprised by relational conflict in your life or especially in the church. Wait, 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 wait. Pastor Adam, I thought these guys were Christians. I thought these guys were ministers of reconciliation. I thought these guys were the best missionaries in the history of the world. Yes, yes, yes. And yet they couldn't reconcile? Yes. I mean, really think about that. How do you have a problem with the son of comfort? Barnabas, his nickname was son of encouragement. How does he have a problem with you? How do you have a problem with the apostle Paul? I mean, the guy wrote 13 books in the New Testament. I mean, you just argue with him. He'd be like, all right, let me add another verse in Galatians 6 here about you. <laughs> Thou shalt not abandon thy friends. How about that? You don't argue. How do you argue with this guy? And yet, these two somehow managed to do it. And if so, if these two amazing godly men somehow split over a disagreement, might it happen one or two times to me and you? I think sometimes we have this utopian view of the Christian life that... Christian married couples should never have conflict, serious conflict, should never need therapy. We think churches should never have to fire staff, pastors never go different ways, split up, church members should never leave and join a different church. You see, it happens. It's possible for good, godly men and women to disagree so deeply on an important issue that they split. We need that category for conflict. Now, Acts 15, the chapter before this, is all about unity. So I think God's preference is always unity, but it happens. Should not be normative. If it is normative, you might want to do some self-reflection, but it's a category. The good news, though, is that even though they split and don't ever work together again, specifically Paul and Barnabas, do you know they end up reconciled? Even John, Mark, and Paul are reconciled. At the end of his life in 2 Timothy, right before he's beheaded, Paul says to Timothy, bring Mark, bring John, Mark with you. He is useful to me in the ministry. So kind of the point here is don't be surprised when you have relational issues and be encouraged. God will reconcile you with that person, either in this life or in heaven. Second point under this with relational conflict, conflict is a collision of opposing values. I think that's something we learned from Barnabas and Paul. Conflict is a collision of opposing values. Let me ask you, honestly, I'm, I'm just curious what you think. Who's right in this conflict? Was it Barnabas or Paul? We don't know. 
Luke doesn't tell us. You know, Kent Hughes, a commentator, says, our heart goes with Barnabas and our judgment goes with Paul. And I think what that means is that in this broken world, sometimes we get into conflicts that aren't because anyone is doing anything wrong, but because we have different values and we're faced with difficult decisions in a sinful, broken world. Don't assume that when you have conflict, you're doing something wrong. I think we tend, when we, when we have disagreements in gospel community, we have different disagreements, deep disagreements in marriage, we have dis, dis, deep disagreements even in ministry, we think, oh no, something's wrong. No, oftentimes it's a good thing. Conflict is often a collision of opposing values. Barnabas valued loyalty. He was the encourager, right? John Mark, let's give him a second chance. He messed up the first time, I bet he does better the second time. Paul valued excellence. He was the Enneagram 3. He was the achiever. He was like, we need to get this stuff done. John Mark ain't coming with us. He doesn't have what it takes. Is Barnabas right or is Paul right? Yes. Barnabas was right about John Mark because John Mark ends up writing the gospel, Mark. Kind of a big deal. And John Mark becomes Peter's assistant. Peter even gives him a shout out in his epistle. So, he... Obviously, it was useful to the church. And Paul was right because this second missionary journey was perhaps the most successful of all of them. They start revivals and churches all over Europe. And maybe that happened because John Mark wasn't with them. See, Barnabas and Paul, they just value different things. Both godly traits, loyalty, excellence, good things. It's not necessarily a bad thing. They're disagreeing here. And so when you and I get in fights with people we love or people we don't love, We need to remember that conflict usually is not a good person versus an evil person. It's usually a good person versus a good person with differing values. One parent wants their children to go to public school so they can be a witness for Jesus in the world. That's great. The other parent says, no, 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 I want to homeschool because I want to protect them from the world. That's great too. One church member says we need to value evangelism and missions. We need to multiply our gospel community and and reach more lost people. That's awesome. The same church member in the same group says, no, no, no. We need to close our gospel community, really dig in and do life together, not have new people come in so we can be fellowshipping and knowing each other deeply. That's great, too. There's no enemies here. There's just differing values that lead to difficult decisions. Either nature or nurture has made us all different. And we, in a sense, bring to each other opposing, differing values. And in the best of times, we sharpen each other. And in the worst of times, we collide with one another. And so here's the key principle from this. Don't vilify another Christian with an opposing value. Don't vilify another Christian with an opposing value. You know, culture is selling you a massive lie right now that you can't love someone if you disagree with them deeply. That in order to love someone deeply, you need to agree with them on pretty much everything. That is baloney. You don't have to compromise your convictions to be compassionate. And we live in such divided times because you turn on MSNBC and constantly the message is Republicans are evil. Then you turn on Fox News and constantly the message is Democrats are stupid. We're not even Americans anymore. We're just subgroups underneath the big category of American that fight with each other all the time because we have differing values. And we have been more discipled in conflict by the culture than by the church. 
We see here a category, I love you, I disagree with you, we need to go different ways, but I'm going to still speak well of you, and I'll even reconcile with you. If you read the rest of the New Testament, Paul and Barnabas never speak ill of each other. In fact, later on, Paul calls Barnabas a brother. And so, just honest question, you may be really passionate about some really important things. Could you look at a Democrat or Republican and call them brother? Sister, could you look at a charismatic or a fundamentalist and say, brother, sister, could you look at someone who owns an AR-15 and say, brother? Could you look at an illegal immigrant and say, sister? These are complex issues with differing values. We don't vilify each other. We vilify Satan. In fact, in Ephesians, at the end of the book, Paul says, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not me and you. Our battle is against Satan. How are we fighting with each other? We should be fighting with him. What if we saw disagreement not as a threat but an opportunity to learn, to be sharpened? I love what Ted Lasso says. He says, be curious, not judgmental. Be curious, man, not judgmental. And so we need to recognize what a gift it is that this church is full of all kinds of different people who stand on different uh, opinions and differing uh, issues. Now, you and I may not work together. We may not go to church together. We may not become best friends. We, you might, might get married to someone in this room because of those differing values and, and, and such, but I can commit to not slandering you, can I? I can commit to loving you. And man, this world so desperately needs people who disagree with each other on deep, important issues, but love each other more than they love their argument. I mean, what an image to see people who stand in differing views on uh, things like immigration or foreign policy or reparations or welfare just totally disagree having dinner together, worshiping together, praying together, covenanted together. Now, certainly there's some things we can't do that. We can't do life together if we disagree on some of these really important issues. But I think on most issues, we can disagree and love each other. So, and just one more quick point on this, by the way. I think this is a good life lesson. Let's just, I want to help make this place a happy place, right? Just a couple, if you disagree with somebody, if you're colliding with opposing values, can I just say to you, you can confront someone without being a confrontational person. You can argue with someone without being an argumentative person. If you find yourself regularly getting angry, rude, or combative in an argument, you have begun to value your argument more than the person you're talking to. When you disagree with someone, treat them as if Jesus died for them, because he did. And you may have the theology of Jesus, but do you have the methodology of Jesus? You may be as right as Jesus is on that particular issue, but do you have the tone of Jesus? Do you have the condescension of Satan? are the humility of Jesus. I think all of us, as we consider how we do conflict, we probably have someone to apologize to, don't we? We probably need forgiveness in some of these areas. Good news, Jesus offers that grace. Third thing here, just real quick on relational conflict, we learn is God sovereignly works through our conflict for his good purposes. Man, this is such good news for you who have been through a breakup or a tough time relationally. Verse 40, Paul chooses Silas 
and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. For 41, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul also came to Derbe. In the Lystra, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So God takes away Paul, uh, Barnabas and John Mark from Paul's life, but then he replaces them with Silas and Timothy. What grace, huh? What Paul loses in Barnabas and John Mark, Paul gains in Silas and Timothy. Silas was the perfect missionary companion for a plethora of reasons, and then Timothy ends up becoming Paul's son in the faith. That's what he calls him. Come really close. If Barnabas and John Mark didn't split with Paul, these relationships might not have happened. Paul might have missed out on a spiritual son. And even crazier, instead of one missionary team, God splits them and sends two missionary teams. In God's grace, in his great equation of life, sometimes he turns our division into his multiplication. God even uses broken relationships for his glory and our good. So that's the sovereignty of God in relational conflict. Then we see the sovereignty of God in personal sacrifice. And man, this, this part's about to get real intimate. So hang on with me. Have some grace with me. Welcome to RCC. The Bible's, it gets a little awkward sometimes. We're, we're about to see. In chapter 16, we meet this guy named Timothy, right? And Timothy was in his late 20s and his early 30s. We know Timothy's dad was not a Christian. And uh, the Greek here infers that Timothy's dad was actually dead. So Paul becomes, again, Timothy's spiritual father. Which, by the way, is a great reminder on this Father's Day that you don't have to have a biological son to be a dad in the church. There are a lot of orphan Christians in here, a lot of orphans in this city. You can be a Paul to them if you give them the time. So Timothy follows his spiritual dad, Paul, becomes Timothy's, uh, Paul's right-hand man. He does everything Paul does, which, by the way, this is a, another point. This is a good pattern. If you're a young leader in this room, don't expect to be CEO by year three. Okay, let's slow down a little bit. Timothy followed Paul and went through the leadership development process for a while. Stay, be faithful, learn. You know, you can try and microwave your maturity, unlike Timothy, but don't be surprised if you turn out like a hot pocket. You might be volcano hot in some areas, but you will be Arctic cold in a lot of important areas. Very soggy. Put some of that development young person in the oven. Let it simmer. Learn from someone who's done it for a while rather than going on your own. That's what Timothy does. And it blesses him later on. So Timothy's like, all right, Paul, I'm rolling with you on this missionary journey. Verse 3. What? Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and what him? Thank you, brother. (laughs) A little louder for everyone on, on the live stream. He circumcised him. Because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, a little context. If you're new to church, welcome to RCC. Uh, let me explain this to you. Last week, we talked about Acts chapter 15, right? There was this big debate in the church. Do Gentile, non-Jewish Christians, when they believe the gospel, need to also be circumcised after they believe to be saved? And, I mean, I'm just imagining that, that council meeting. Like, all the Gentile Christians are like, please, God. Please, like, you know, they're, they're, they're listening at the door like, please, Lord, we pray prayers of, of providence. And the doors bust open. Circumcision is not necessary, praise the Lord. You pray, you believe, you're good. Let's go. Cheers. Excitement. 
Ain't going to be no cutting today. Now, this is a huge deal because it's a reminder of the beauty of the gospel, friend. The confidence we get from the gospel, but also the humility we get from the gospel. See, what this means is that we bring nothing to God. No spiritual act to God to be made righteous in His sight. You see, circumcision was serving as a spiritual resume to these Christians. Like, yeah, sure, Jesus died to save me, but I also was circumcised. There you go, I helped him out, I'm saved now. This is kind of like when I go to the gym with Pastor Wilson. You know, I'm going for a new bench record. I'm putting up 250 for the first time, and Pastor Wilson is, is right there spotting me with two fingers like, come on, baby, let's go. <laughs> Come on, come on. You know, at the very end, he like slightly lifts up and puts it on with me. And we're like, yeah. And Wilson's like, we did it, baby. We did it. I was like, we did it? No, no, no. I did it. You provided the support. And even more so, the point here is the gospel is Jesus lifted the weight. You didn't lift any weight. You brought the weight. And he saved you. We have nothing to boast about. We provide nothing which gives us humility. And yet, at the same time, the gospel means we have this unshakable confidence and joy because every good thing God says about Jesus, he now says about us. And some of you need to hear this this morning. This is why this is such a big deal, this circumcision thing. It's a weird topic, but it's a good news message. You see, what this means is that the whole world can look at you, point their finger at you, and say to you, you're not good enough for us. You see, you might be whispering to yourself today, or someone might be shouting to you, you're not good at your job. They should just fire you. You're not a good enough husband or wife. Or if you were really lovable, you'd have a husband or wife. Or a kid. See, the world might say to you, you don't have friends that actually like you, for you. You know, it's Father's Day. You're a terrible father. And the world will hint or say those things to you if you don't say to yourself, but the good news of this message that we're talking about here is Romans 3.23. For everyone has sinned. Humility. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Humility. I didn't lift the weight. Circumcision does nothing. Verse 24, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. Confidence. He did this through Christ Jesus, when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Confidence. Now we can say, you know what? I could improve as a dad, but I got a good dad in heaven who died for me anyway. I may be bad at my job, but he's pretty good at his. The gospel is everything we need. And so if that is the case, if that is the central message of the Bible, why in the world is Timothy... Getting circumcised kind of counteracts everything we just talked about. Because this is not for salvation. This is for mission. You see, Timothy's mom was a Jew, which made Timothy a Jew. 
And Timothy wasn't circumcised, which meant Timothy as a non-circumcised Jew was not allowed to go into the synagogues and the cities around the world. And what's the first thing Paul does whenever he reaches a new city? Goes to the synagogue, preaches the gospel to Jews. So Timothy would not be a more effective missionary with Paul unless he got circumcised. Timothy gets the snip-snip so that he can preach the gospel more effectively. So he'd have full access to the synagogues. I mean, no wonder Paul loves this guy. John Mark gets tired of sleeping in his sleeping bag and he goes home. Timothy puts it all on the table, man. Sorry, but it's what he does, I mean. And I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time here, but like, there wasn't Oxycontin back then. Uh, there was no anesthesia. I, there was no hospitals. I don't know, I, I don't want to know what kind of tool they used, but I'm sure it looked very menacing. This is how much Timothy loved the unreached peoples of the world. This is how much he loved his lost neighbor. We got to love him, man. <laughs> Come on, bro. Would you get circumcised for that guy? <laughs> Timothy did. Like, Timothy's like, if it even gives me a slight chance of being more effective in preaching the gospel, I'll do it. I mean, we're so wimpy compared to this, aren't we? Like, in our gospel communities, I, we're, we're tempted to be like, yeah, these are my friends, this is my friend group, and I don't want anyone else new to come because it might mess with the relational dynamics, and I really like the size of our group right now, so let's, you know, if someone new comes, I'm not going to be super welcoming, I'm not going to try to bring lost people in here because I really like this group we got here. And Timothy's like, bro, you're missing the point. We give up what we have to provide for those who don't know Jesus. What is it that Jesus is calling you to cut to personally sacrifice for the good of your lost neighbor? What is he calling you to personally sacrifice for the good of that church member you're struggling with? Or that person in your family? Not because you want to or need to, just simply because Jesus was cut for you and you want to be cut for them. It's a path of personal sacrifice, man. Now, Paul and Timothy were pretty close. You know how I know? Well, because Paul was the one who did it. Man, that's some intimacy right there. If you're a guy, turn to your neighbor and be like, brother, I do it for you. <laughs> oh, man. Welcome to our church, bro. <clears throat> Now, obviously, circumcision, thank God, does not save anyone today in that if, if you're not circumcised and you get circumcised, it's not going to help you reach people more effectively with the gospel. Praise Jesus. The main idea, sorry, I said circumcision way too much. The main idea here, <laughs> it's the verse, all right? The main idea here is if people are going to reject your ministry, make sure it's the gospel they're rejecting and not your cultural biases and practices. Make sure people reject the gospel and not you. So that can vary from your tone when you're sharing the gospel to if you're in a mosque sharing the gospel with Muslim unbelievers. If you're a woman, wear the hijab. Wear the head covering. Just so you're not a distraction anyway, you can get the message across. If you're in, 
in uh, East Asia, an un unreached people group trying to reach Buddhists, become a vegetarian. You got to give up hunting. Because you want to, it's not worth it. You want to reach these people. If you're trying to reach your lost friend at the gym, sorry, but drink the beet juice. <laughs> Do the extra set. Go sweat in the sauna. You might not like it, but it's worth it, isn't it? Let me take this a little deeper, okay? Don't be mad at me. If you're a college student or work with really liberal, um, like theologically liberal coworkers, man, read the book they're reading on queer theory. Read the book they're reading on universalism. Read the book they're reading on critical race theory. You shouldn't agree with most of it, but at least you can connect with that person and talk to them about it in a kind way and then point them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me go even further. Man, people are going to leave because of this. Wear the mask. Get the COVID test. You might not think you need it, but it's loving to your neighbor. Don't let anything get in the way of the gospel, man. It's not worth it. If it's not sin, do it for the sake of your neighbor, for the sake of that un unreached person. Put no stumbling blocks in the way of the gospel. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to require the path of personal sacrifice. And you will have circumcision moments. Please do not tweet that. You're going to need to make decisions that seem to personally hurt you for the advantage of your neighbor. That can be as little as giving someone shotgun in the car ride. Or as big as living in a tough city that you personally fleshly would never live in without the gospel. And the point is, if we choose to personally sacrifice like Timothy does here, God sovereignly uses these things in ways more than we can imagine. I mean, think about the personal sacrifice of Jesus. Think about how much that has benefited us by bringing us redemption before a holy God. Think of the personal sacrifice of Timothy and Paul. Think about how much that has benefited us by planting churches all around the world, bringing the gospel here, and all these letters we're reading. We cannot even calculate the numerous amount of good our personal sacrifices will do for future generations around us. And this is why the plump American church is on the decline. It's so fickle because we have taken Jesus' command to come and die and turned it into eat, drink, and be merry. It's a path leading to death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I die every day. We cannot separate the pathway of Jesus from the way of personal sacrifice. And just last thought on this. <laughs> if, if Timothy were to come down from heaven right now and to talk to us, do you think he regrets that sacrifice? You think all those people that he, he was able to talk to and reach, you think he's regretting? You think they're regretting? You know, in James 1.12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You think Timothy is kneeling, receiving a crown from Jesus Christ for all the sacrifices he has made and regretting one of them? You and I will get to heaven and say, I wish I gave more. Like Schindler and Schindler's List, I could have given more. What are ways God is calling you to embrace personal discomfort for the good of your neighbor like Jesus did for you?
and trust God uses this to give you a joy deeper than if you lived your life trying to please yourself all the time. Somehow when we give, we get. So, verse 4. As is the post-cutting moment, they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders from Jerusalem. So they're going to these churches they planted and telling them, hey, gospel's enough. You don't need to be circumcised. Praise the Lord. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. I'm just trying to imagine, by the way, can you imagine Timothy going to these Jewish Christians around the world? Or, excuse me, these Jewish unbelievers around the world and telling them the gospel and he, he telling them, I was circumcised though I didn't have to. Why would you do that? Because I wanted to know you. I wanted to have a relationship with you. Imagine how they would have responded to that. I sacrificed just so I can get to know you. And that's displaying and declaring the gospel. So we've seen the sovereignty of God and twists and turns of life through relational conflict, personal sacrifice, and then just final last point, through closed doors. Man, there's a lot of young people in this room. I think this is going to be really encouraging to you. <clears throat> Paul's itinerary gets all messed up in this section. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God, God has called us to preach the gospel to them. So, okay, well, what happens? How did Paul and Silas and Timothy get to Macedonia? Well, they try to go east. God says no. Verse 7, they try to go north. God says no. So they kind of end up floating around, verse 8, passing by Mysia. Then they went to Troas, and they don't know what the heck's going on. They're, they're just kind of there waiting on God to tell them what to do, and they're stuck. You ever been there before? Uncertain what's next? Asking God, why in the world did you bring me all this way to say no to this good thing, no to this good thing, and I have no idea what to do anymore? I mean, these are three short verses, but for them, it's probably months and months and months of traveling, seemingly wasted money, frustration, temptation to quit. God, why would you shut this door in my face? I don't know about you, but when my plans get canceled, I get frustrated, man. I try and, you know, I pack all my kids in the car, we go to the gym, I want to drop my kids off at the kids' club. And the door is closed. What the heck, man? I am frustrated. I cannot imagine walking to Canada to plant a church. And God says, ah, never mind. Don't go there. That's what happens. Be encouraged in your I don't know what's next. Paul starts out going east to strengthen churches in Asia, has two seemingly good options closed by God, and then he ends up in the west in Macedonia. And that's often how the will of God works in our lives, isn't it? Talk to anyone who's above 60. A lot of twists and a lot of turns. But really what's most twisting and turning is our faith. What's most twisting and turning is our holiness and our trust in a good sovereign God guiding us where he wants us to go. Now, 
how, this is really helpful for you as you think about where am I going to live, where, where am I going to buy a home, where am I going to plant roots. How does God guide, guide people today? Obviously, he doesn't give us all a Macedonian call for everything. He doesn't spell out who you're supposed to marry in your Cheerios in the morning. Sometimes it seems a little more ambiguous, right? Now, he might give some vision or dream, but that's not really normative. Here's three principles really quick on God's sovereignty and grace and ruined plans. Number one, God uses open doors and closed doors. He forbids and he permits in your life. There are times when God says no, and you don't know why he's saying no. And it might even seem cruel why he's saying no. There's a lot of no's here. But then it leads to a yes. Open doors, closed doors. We don't know why all the time. God, why would you not want this good thing for me? We're not sure, but it wasn't his timing. And we always tend to look back, don't we, and say, that worked out. So if you are here this morning and you're facing a closed door, you're frustrated, you didn't get into medical school, the, the place you wanted to go, the person you wanted to marry didn't work out, the investment you made is failing, whatever that is, that closed door, maybe you're stuck in a troas, uncertain what to do now, kind of like Paul and his companions were, be patient. Because God tends to open up another door eventually. And in the waiting, he grows us. Second point here, God's guidance is both personal and communal in decision making. God is directing Paul here through a vision, and yet Paul is also going to his community for, for counsel. Notice they is the most common pronoun in this section of text. They, 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 they. Verse 8, they went to Troas. Verse 10, we concluded Macedonia was the right decision. And so we say this often at RCC, if you're going to make a big decision, well, you better get some big counsel. A lot of people think that's unspiritual, like it's just me and Jesus, he's guiding me. But actually, if you read the Bible, most decisions are made in community. In fact, the last chapter, Acts 15, they had to make a big decision, they do it in community. Proverbs is over and over again, seek an abundance of counselors so you can make wise decisions. Seek counsel. Now, third thing, last point here, God's guidance is often gradual and unpredictable. It's gradual, and that means we don't often know what's happening with our lives. These guys set out to strengthen churches in the east, and God shuts the door. They go elsewhere, he shuts the door. Then they end up in Troas, boom, Macedonia, and then churches are planted in Philippi and Thessalonica and other places. Again, it's a lot easier to just read these verses and not consider how much heartache this probably caused them. And so let me encourage you, as we see the end of the story for Paul and Silas and Timothy, you don't see the end of your story. You don't know what your future holds. That's okay. Here's some good news for you. God is with us, and he's guiding you. If you look at the text, notice the Trinitarian sovereignty of God in this passage. Verse 6 says the Holy Spirit prevented them from going to Asia. Then verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus didn't permit them to go to Bithynia. Then verse 10, it says God the Father called them to go to Macedonia. Listen, you may not know where you're going, but he does. You may not know what your future holds, but you know who holds your future, don't you? So just enjoy the ride, friend. You noticing a theme here? No to Barnabas and John Mark. No to Paul going to Asia. No to Bithynia. Yes to Silas and Timothy. Yes to Macedonia. Be comforted by God's sovereignty in the broken relationships of your life and the broken plans of your life. Get used to God saying no so he can lead you to his yes. You know, when uh, I'm about to make dinner for our family, which is not very often, but when it happens, 
I'm about to, you know, get the ingredients out, get the kids occupied, set the table, that kind of thing. And Sherry's like, you know what? Why don't we just order pizza tonight? Heck yeah, let's order pizza tonight with no pineapple, right? You know, that wasn't my original plan, but it's always better. You know, God's got a pizza in your life, man. The thing that makes that hard, though, is you don't get to have control. You don't hold the joystick. You're not driving. He is. That's scary, isn't it? It's not so scary, though, when you know his character. That God loved me when he knew my Carfax. God loved me when he knew my credit score. God knew me and loved me when he knew my high school sophomore GPA, which was horrendous. He knew me and loved me in my worst moments. If he knew me and loved me then, he won't stop knowing me and loving me now. He won't stop looking out for me now, will he? I wasn't looking for him. I shouldn't even be here right now. I should be at a mosque right now. But he snatched me from my rebellion, gave me Jesus. And that was a pretty good plan, wasn't it? I'm pretty happy with that plan. You know, I'm going to trust him with the plans he's got for my life. And maybe you can too. I mean, this concept is all throughout the text, friend. God is sovereignly using the twists and turns of your life for his good and your good. Every time we read the verse, it's like, man, this looks bad. Turns out good. And if you look, I mean, each point we've made so far today, each section of each point concludes with, and the churches were strengthened. Point one, there's concerning relational conflict amongst the missionaries, yet verse 41 And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Point two, Timothy's deep, painful personal sacrifice. Yet chapter 16, verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Point three, closed door, closed door, closed door. Yet open door finally. And this leads to three miraculous salvations in chapter 16 and churches planted all throughout Europe. Do you see the theme? Sometimes God's going to say no to your relationship, no to your friendship, no to your job, no to that city, and it's discouraging, but you haven't gotten to your last verse yet, and it's coming. And man, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be that symphony you hear and you're like, hmm, that's good. And so, friend, I just want to encourage you, worship the inscrutable wisdom of God's sovereignty in your life. Ride it like a wave, and don't lose hope as you ride it. On the other end of a breakup... God often has for us is Silas and Timothy. On the other end of a failed missionary journey is a revival in Macedonia. On the other end of the twists and turns of this life is a sovereign God with his arms extended, ready to welcome, welcome us home and hand you a crown. And so when life hits you hard, you don't need to say maybe. You can say this stinks, but it's going to turn out good because my father's got me. Happy Father's Day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace in our lives that we cause a lot of relational conflict that's unnecessary. We don't handle our conflict well, and that yet you died for us anyway. Help us in our conflict as a church, God. Help us to disagree well. Help us to be personal sacrificers who give up our comforts and embrace pain for the good of the other. Not because we're masochists, but because we want to love people the way Jesus loved you, loved others. And God, help us to trust you in the twists and turns of our 
changed and broken plans. Lead us to the Macedonia you have for us. Work all things together for good. We know you've promised this. Help us to trust you in that, even when things seem bleak. And ultimately, we thank you for Jesus, who gives us every reason to hope, to rejoice, to sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. Thank you.